On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Pink Floyd's The Wall, the motion picture. Welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends Paul Zotter, Tom Corcoran, and Ken Gregory as we finish out the Pink Floyd catalog covering The Wall, the motion picture. Joe, the only other film that I can think of with that name where it says the name of the motion picture is Star Trek. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Star Trek, the motion picture. Which which is a big, big big steaming pile of crap. (laughs) (laughs) But at least it allows us to differentiate between the different uh, versions of the wall. So, so, gentlemen, this is, uh, for the time being, I guess, and I, you know, beyond lessons learned and, and whatever else, but this is our last official episode of uh, our Pink Floyd segment. And the way we have this mapped out, this will also turn into episode 99. Wow. So, <laughs> so you know, we've, we've got uh, we've got some good stuff to to cover here tonight. And. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna pat myself on the back here a little bit because when I hatched this scheme to cover these three facets of the wall, it was one of those things I was kind of like second guessing myself: Is this really going to work? Are we going to have enough to talk about? Is it going to make sense? Is there enough differentiation? And then, of course, once you decide to do that, you know, ultimately we decided to cover them sort of in the order in which they came out. So the album the stage show, and then, and now the, the movie itself. But I, for me personally, I think, I think this narrative constructed itself absolutely perfectly. And I'm really, really excited to sort of have this, this final discussion of, of this particular creative concept, uh, courtesy of one Roger Waters. So we're a little light on context for this, but suffice to say the album came out in 1979 and the movie came out in 1982. And during that stretch of period, during that time period, the band toured their asses off and made no money. So it, it's amazing that the movie was made, and it's amazing that it was made with such high quality. So let's talk then about that. So this movie was directed by Alan Parker with animation by Gerald Scarf. It was produced by Alan Marshall, Screenplay by Roger Waters, based on The Wall by Pink Floyd, um, starring Bob Geldof. Music by Pink Floyd, Bob Ezrin, and Michael Kamen. Um, cinematography is is covered by the, the director of photography, Peter Bizio, I believe is how you say his name. He's going to come into, into the story a little bit later on. Um, it was distributed by MGM and United Artists. It was released on 23 of May, 1982. Running time is 95 minutes. 
It had a budget of $12 million and a box office of $22.2 million. That alone is impressive. We'll get into that later. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the, the cast, as credited in the wikis, now obviously there's more, but Bob Geldof as Pink, with Kevin McKeon as Young Pink and David Bingham as Little Pink, um, Christine Hargreaves as Pink's mother, Eleanor David as Pink's wife, Alex McAvoy as teacher, Bob Hoskins as rock manager, Michael Ensign as hotel manager, um, James Lawrenson as Pink's father, Jenny Wright as American groupie, Marjorie Mason as teacher's wife, Ellis Dale as English doctor, James Hazeldine as lover, Ray Mort as playground father, Robert Bridges as American doctor, and uh, Joanne Wally and Neil, I'm sorry, Nell Campbell, Emma Longfellow, and Laura Barton as groupies, and Philip Davis and Gary Olson as roadies. And then Pink Floyd The Wall is a 1982 musical film directed by Alan Parker based on the 1979 Pink Floyd album The Wall. The screenplay was written by Pink Floyd vocalist and bassist Roger Waters. Bob Geldof plays rock star Pink, who, driven into insanity by the death of his father, constructs a physical and emotional wall to protect himself. Like the album, the film is highly metaphorical, and symbolic imagery and sound are present most commonly. The film is mostly driven by music and does not feature much dialogue. The film is best known for its imagery of mental isolation, drug use, war, fascism, dark or disturbing animated sequences, sexual situations, violence, and gore. Despite its turbulent production and the creators voicing their discontent about the final product, the film received generally positive reviews and has established and has an established cult following. So I, I've got to ask, did anyone else look up Alan Parker's filmography? Nope. Um, I think I may have one. I watched this a long time ago. Because there, um, was, there was one thing on there that just made me fall over. And it's actually the movie he does immediately after The Wall. That movie would be Birdie. Oh, right, right, right. Famous, obviously, for the soundtrack by one Peter Gabriel, which yes. was one of those sort of, you know, holy grail type objects to obtain back when we were in our 20s. I, I have very similar memories of watching Birdie as I do watching... Watching the wall, groups of people hanging out, watching, not really knowing what the fuck I was watching, but every, <laughs> everybody thought it was cool. So there I was. So we're basically fans here of one Alan Parker. I I think so. I I'm I'm certainly a fan of this movie, undoubtedly, and you know the the Prague connection to Birdie was just unexpected. It seemed unusual that. Um, you know he would he would be connected to both of those so close together and while it's been a very very long time since i watched birdie i agree with you paul it in my mind it sort of made sense when i saw that he had directed that as well i watched the the documentary on this film and i think that was like a revisit they did they they cut in all of these original interviews that they did with the film and then it was like 10 or 20 years later and they were interviewing these cats and it was, you know, it was basically a, a, a back and forth, different interviews in different places with, with Roger Waters, Alan Parker and, um, Jerry I can't Scarf? Remember. yeah, yeah. Jerry Scarf. Right. 
and I, and I, it's really hard to watch the interviews of the of the real time when they're doing the the movie and really coming away liking any of them. They are <laughs> so like just arrogant and stuck on themselves and like it it's no wonder they couldn't be interviewed together because their heads couldn't probably fit through the same door of the room (laughs) and and it's no wonder that they it was a terrible process because they were just all so full of themselves that that you know that how could how could they have been satisfied with anything that any anyone was doing and, and it's interesting, Paul, because and, and I don't know if it was the same documentary um, or not, but but the the one that's attached to the Blu-ray that I have, there's a it's a two part retrospective, and it it I honestly don't remember, but it, it it's mainly driven by the the interviews that were done later, certainly. Okay. And yeah. it has Alan Parker, Jerry Scarf, Roger Waters, but it also has this director of, of photography, um, Peter Bizio. And, yes, I, and that's he, it. He's phenomenal. That dude is just chill as a cucumber, and yeah. you can just tell that you know he's still kind of geeked about some of the technical stuff that they did, and and some of the 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 visual images that they were able to capture. I thought he was extraordinarily engaging in that. I agree. I agree. The, I mean, the most refreshing thing about all those interviews, outside of of that guy was when Roger Waters admits, you know, all those years later that, yeah, he was, he, you know, it's not really a good movie. Yeah. And he, he didn't even know what the end was. The, the other, (laughs) the other thing that sort of gets me about that. Did you, did you watch to the end to see who produced that, um, that documentary? I don't think I did watch that part. That, that documentary was produced by one Storm Thurgeson. Oh my God. (laughs) Wow. So, you know, I just I thought that was funny because we're in this period in Pink Floyd where Storm isn't being used for the album covers at that point. He didn't do the wall, he didn't do the final cut which bookend this this thing, but apparently I guess he was still in the fold enough that he was willing to to produce that documentary. So I just thought that was kind yeah. of funny. There was one quote from Alan Parker and I don't remember if it was contemporaneous or, or after the fact, but it, it kind of resonated with me because we've had conversations when we talked about the, the album, when we talked about the stage show, and when we talked even with, with um, Andre and, and Durga, right? Some of the extreme images and language that gets used in the wall, it sort of keeps popping up and, and how to deal with that. And not only in this movie, not only did they they keep that language in, the imagery was really, really ramped up. Um, you know, and, and there was honestly some of the scenes, given what we've been living through here recently, and and having the experience of talking with with Durga and Andre, the imagery in Run Like Hell was very unsettling to me in a way that it may not have been 10 years ago or, or whatever the case may be, or, yeah. you know, whatever. But given that, there was a quote that, that Alan Parker had in this documentary that just, it, it stuck with me. So I took the time to write it all down. And Alan was, says, oh, go ahead. a lot of people might get the wrong impression from what we've done. 
for instance, we have gone to great pains to show um, to show it as this great evil, but we have recreated a sort of fascist rally, a sort of rock and roll Nuremberg, which a lot of people might be um, might be seduced by because of its spectacle. So we have to trust, or we have to treat very warily. But I think having said that, if you have a clear view of what you want to say, then you have to have the courage to say it and say it as strongly as you possibly can. So, you know, I, I, I was at least somewhat comforted in the fact that, you know, they knew, or at least Alan Parker knew, what they were showing was, you know, potentially objectionable. Um, and he, they sort of committed themselves to showing that in, you know, to the extent, I guess, of, of you know, conveying the story. I, it, it at least explains why some of the images are so, you know, strong in, in those sections. There, there really are a lot of unsettling images and, and that sort of imagery. And <clears throat> One of the things that was difficult for me to, um, it was hard for me to go back and watch this film um, because as much as I love horror movies and I love making sound effects for horror movies and I love dark movies, um, maybe it was the fact that I watched it so much when I was young as Paul mentioned earlier, you know, you're with your friends and, you know, you don't really know what it's about, but there's just some, some unsettling things that you talk about, you know, sort of set scenes that you talk to your friends about. But um, there were scenes that I sort of had like way back in the back of my, my mind over these years that sort of always had sort of haunted me. It's even, you know, in, and another brick in the wall part two, you know, even like how, when the kids are going through the, um, the I'm sorry, the, the conveyor belt. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. And so they're starting off as kids and then there's another cut and then they, they sort of have that soulless, you know, yeah. empty sockets in yep. their eyes and mouth. That's like a really, uh, it's like a simple effect, but that just, that is, is, it's very scary to me. Um, and, um, and something like that, it really goes to show you um, how important it is, or how special effects are not that important. I mean, because that what their their choice there was was very strong, and and it sticks with you. And you know, you don't go and see a scene, you don't go and see this movie in 2020 and go, oh, that that was cheesy. That can be, you know. That can be done with CGI or, or whatever, because it was just done well. But I just want to go back for a second. Um, I just want to put this in perspective. I mean, guys, this is an amazing film. And, and the fact that you have a $12 million film for an artsy, dark musical film that's that's put together through, through imagery. And this will never be... Anything like this will never, ever be made again. Like, not even, 
on any level because, I mean, what they did here, um, they didn't sort of take the easy way out and make a whole narrative of this movie. Uh, and then write like a script with dialogue and oh Pink's life and these scenes with his mom and all this stuff. They 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 stuck with the music and they stuck with these with these images and um, and they actually made money on this. <laughs> I mean the, I mean it, it, this whole thing, you know, we we, we talk about Dark Side right and and how amazing it is that Dark Side did as well as it it did. Um, that to me was amazing, but th- this is just again not to go into a, like a rant, but like kids that grow up will just never have these experiences. They can still watch the movie, and they can still get something from the movie, but just to have a movie like this made at all, uh, and and I know that twelve million dollars, uh, you know, a lot of movies are, are made a lot cheaper now. So you know, unless you're doing like a um, like a Marvel summer blockbuster or Star Trek or Star Wars, I mean, $12 million can get you a lot. And so the fact that $12 million was spent on this still, still blows my mind. But um, I did just want to agree with you, Joe, that these, these images in this film, and, you know, we'll be bringing this up this whole episode because there there are so many, um, especially when you you talk about the uh, animation that, I mean, I haven't even gotten to the animation, but um, the imagery in this film is unlike anything, and um, it, it really has stuck with me over the years. I certainly agree with, with all of that, Tom. There are other sort of artsy films, certainly, that have been made. So I, I think, you know, young people have the ability to experience those. While you were talking about it, it's not a musical. It's not necessarily on the same level. But... You know, when you were talking about the general feel and everything else, I was sort of, my brain immediately went to um, Birdman starring Michael Keaton, which was haunting in a very similar way as this was, although it's it's in some ways a more traditional type movie um, than, than certainly this is. But but yeah, you know, the, the way that they were able to convey so much with with so little dialogue and really just build it off the album and you know one of the things one of the at the top of this episode i I patted myself on the back for the way that we actually covered this and and the concern that i have had at the time was when we considered the the three stage performances of the wall by the time you get to 2010 and and 1990 when you you have them coming out after the movie and you have sort of access to those visuals, the concern would be that sort of the the overall import of the movie would be in some way, shape, or form diminished. But I don't think that's the case at all. And in fact, I was struck by how complete the movie is able to convey the story. It A lot of the things that don't make sense maybe at first blush in either the movie or the stage performance, are brought into crystal clear focus in the movie. I remember we talked about in the the dive bomber at the end of In the Flesh question mark. It doesn't make any sense in the live performances, but it makes perfect sense in the movie. That context is, is just built in so well that the story as a whole becomes so much more coherent. The, the imagery 
and and again, you, you you said it without the fact that this was done without dialogue, or at least for the most part, the fact that all this is imagery, and they were able to, you know, keep most of the music uh, is, I mean, uh, Alan Parker was able to keep Roger Waters' vision, and that's very hard. I mean, how many times have we seen? a movie based on a book that was horrible now and or <clears throat> you know different versions of older movies that were, were were horrible or a play that was made into a movie that that, that didn't turn out now and i think that <clears throat> although we can come up with um critiques of certain parts that maybe didn't work or or whatever um it's I think this was kept, you know, very close to Roger Waters' vision. So I was interested to hear that, you know, yeah. A lot of times, people, you know, I mean, like Stephen King always gripes about the movies that <laughs> you know come out of his book. So I, mean, I can't imagine, you know, most of the time, an author is always going to have problems with um, pictures. But the thing, I know it's a little bit different because we're it's from a, a novel instead of an album, but. Um, I, I think that, you know, Roger Waters, I would think he would be very happy with the, the outcome of this. I feel what you're saying, Tom. I, I, when it's simply a book, our imaginations take over and we paint in everything that's missing and there's almost no way a movie can paint it as beautifully as that. And, And the same thing is true in an audio recording. We come up with our own visuals that are. Uh, spectacular and it's a high bar for the movie to create you know what it is that comes out of the um you know the visuals in our head and and case in point um the brave movie is a little bit underground um you know operation mind crime had its own you know video that was a little bit lacking here and there and it's very rare when an audio recording creates you know some something in the full spectrum of of visuals pacing scenes everything i mean i I, but i wouldn't say that they hit the nail on the head to achieve roger waters goal i would say they they exceeded it by miles just to seal the deal I, i don't think it's enough just to meet like the Roger Waters vision, I think you're bringing in extra people, you're bringing in the director, you're bringing in the producer, and you're setting a very high bar, and unfortunately, like you said, a very high budget to achieve what they did here. I mean, if it was simply Roger Waters' vision, it would have been a little bleak. I mean, it's it's or barren, or you know, I mean, I mean, he only had so much in the wall. And that's you know reflected in his in his staging of the wall and, and the live shows. I mean, there's only so much there that they can do that he can comprehend that he can facilitate as a performer and, and, a, and a producer. But but in this movie, I think it far exceeds anything that 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 you know the music fans could have imagined. Agreed. So, Paul, in the last episode, at the end of that episode, you challenged me on what my thoughts were at the time. 
And I gave some flippant answer about, you know, looking forward yeah. to some weird animation and, and whatnot. And, and uh, you know, along the lines of, of what, you know, we're all saying here right now, I, yeah, I, when I put this on, I was absolutely 100% floored. I, I've watched it through twice in, in the last couple of days. And, you know, the first time I watched it through, I was literally grinning from ear to ear at how much I was enjoying it and how wonderful I thought it was. Ken, the point that you had made about, you know, oftentimes the music creates, you know, such strong images and it's hard for, you know, the, the visual medium to, to, to measure up. I, I, maybe it's ironically noteworthy for me, the one part of this movie that really doesn't land for me at all is comfortably numb. Because, and, and what I thought was the images that that song creates are so graphic and I'm so ingrained to picturing that the way that I picture it. And, and even, you know, the one, the, the super highlight that I mentioned in the original wall stage production was, you know, Roger at the bottom of the wall and David at the top of the wall. Even that simple image to me was much better than than what showed up in the sequence here now you know that's a that's a very very small part of this whole movie but i was just it it didn't work for me so much that i was struck by it well it is the peak i mean depending on what you're looking for as a listener and as a viewer the peak has got to be either comfortably numb or run like hell yeah, and and unfortunately, run like hell as we've already talked about is is disturbing to the point that it's not even funny. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's yeah. I, I think I think I tuned it out the first couple times I watched it because I didn't understand. I was too young to understand the politics fully, and and didn't want to really process that level of violence. And and uh, but but emotionally, comfortably numb is probably the peak for me the first few times I saw this. So there, there are a couple of things that I do want to point out. They sort of came up as we were discussing the album. When the Tigers Broke Free was originally conceived as part of this of the album and part of the story, it was ultimately removed from the album. It is, it was never included as part of the live performances, but it is included here, and it provides that sort of contextual part that I was talking about, it, I find it very interesting that they end up splitting it into two parts so they can put it where they need it. That was very interesting to me. The other thing that came out of the, out of the documentary is the fact that Hey You was supposed to be in the movie. It was in the movie. And ultimately, the movie was running long and they decided to chop it out. So all this conversation that we've always had all these years about whether Hey, you know, hey, whether Hey You belonged as part of, of this work or not, um, it turns out both of them were always part of the work. And, you know, one fit in one medium and the other fit in the other medium. So I, yeah. I just thought that was interesting. And just just to be clear and to make sure that the record is straight, uh, we, you know, we've recanted all questions about Hey You being a part of this because we we've all come around to the acceptance of hey use brilliance in we, its proper place we we being you but 
including the epic performance of of the original tour uh where the whole band is behind the wall singing and david gilmore is laughing while he's chuckling <laughs> through the through the chorus i i have something i want to get off my chest here before we really get into the the crux of this um and I, listen, I can't say enough about this movie, but the hell with Bob Geldof. Um, you know, he did a great job, but I mean, fuck that guy. He didn't even want to be a part of this project. What? I mean, he thought his band, like Boomtown Rats, was so much better than Pink Floyd. Um, he didn't like Pink Floyd. He didn't like the music. He didn't want to be a part of this. Um, and it just, the story of him. And this movie pisses me off, um, you know, because it, it just it just gets under my skin, and I've always found him a little self righteous. But that's another uh, you know topic, I suppose. But who better um, to play Roger Waters' alter ego? Oh, did I say that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, did he do a, a great job? I mean, no complaints. I mean, you know, it was he was fine. But, I mean, I think they could have gotten someone else um, who wasn't bitching about Pink Floyd's music and, you know, sticking their nose up at, you know, um, Prague Rock because he had all these, you know, it was like you know, Boomtown Rats is this whole, like, anti-establishment movement. And I guess, you know, uh, Pink Floyd is the establishment. I mean, who would want to deal with that? I mean, you know, I, I, I'll say this. As much as you think Roger Waters is hard to deal with, the fact that Roger Waters wanted him after he found out he didn't like Pink Floyd and he didn't like Pink Floyd's music, um, that's one dedicated son of a bitch because he's he really knew what he wanted. So I got to give Roger Waters credit for for going through with you know hiring Bob. Bob Geldof for this, um, and and, and go, give, go ahead. I think it's amazing given everything that you said, and it's it's obviously very clearly documented. It's amazing that Geldof was able to turn in the performance that he did, right? Yeah, you know it. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know that it's that amazing. I mean, most of his uh, performances, staring blankly into space and then freaking out and becoming an angry son of a bitch. Uh, so you know, if he hates Pink Floyd and hates the music, no, it's probably very a, easy for him to channel there's that. There's an arc and there's a character development. And, 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 and the real trick is, can you take that aloof guy and do a convincing Nazi leader? And I, I think he did. And, and, um, I, I, I agree. And, and, and to me, Ken, you're, you're exactly right. Because I'll tell you my first impression. And, and it's, it's so interesting the way that this piece is set up. Because we've talked about it in the previous two times, but the sort of the 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 differences, the contrast, the similarities between the in the fleshes. So, you know, almost right out of the gate in the movie, you don't get it right out of the gate, but but fairly close to out of the gate, you get you know Bob Geldof in that character, and in the flesh question mark in the movie doesn't land with me at all. It's too it's too jarring, it's too striking, it's too different from everything that you're used to hearing with regards to that when Roger delivers those lyrics and everything else. But by the time in the flesh statement, 
comes into being and you have followed Geldof's pink through this journey, at that point, the same person doing the same character, doing a very similar but yet different song, becomes to me so much more powerful that it just knocks your socks off. Yeah, clearly I'm in your camp. I agree. It's tough because this this has happened in lots of different movies. I mean, you know, in our adult lifetime, we had um, Joe Quinn Phoenix as Johnny Cash. You know yep. what I mean? And you could go on for hours and hours about how good he was or how horrible he was. And, and it's just inevitable. And I think at some point you just need to, you know, trust the process, trust the creation and allow yourself to experience it. And, I, I, and Tom, I will agree with you that when I was a kid and I finally got to see the movie, I was like, who is this jerk? What? <laughs> Who, what? And, you know, and we didn't have the internet, so it was really weird figuring this out. When, when, when all I knew was, you know, I don't like Mondays. Yeah. Right. I, my, my experience with that, Ken, was I was sitting there watching the wall in, in this big group going to myself, going, man, the guy from Pink Floyd looks just like the dude who did Live Aid. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Shocking. You should have asked me. It's the suspension of belief. Is that yeah. suspension of disbelief? Yes. Suspension, yes. Suspension, suspension of disbelief. Well, well, Ken, just to add what what you were saying, you're right. And what what was successful about this was not just the performance. Yes, the backstory of him not liking Pink Floyd was was heartbreaking. But I think the saving grace, Ken, is that when I learned about the making of the movie, uh, Bob Geldof wasn't a total prick to work with, and he sort of went with all the the, the craziness that he had to do, and you know, floating in the pools, and you know, all the all the um, you know, a lot of stuff is pretty harsh on your body, especially when you're we have a zillion people in a room and it's hot and and everything. It's, it seemed like he rolled with the punches, um, and and the the problem that oftentimes uh, people who, who work on these films, they'll say, I'll never work with that person again because they were hard to deal with. So we didn't have that. I mean, it seemed like Bob Geldof was professional when he was on set and he not only delivered the performance that was needed, but he did it uh, in a in a professional way and he didn't drive everyone nuts. He wasn't this prima donna actor that we sort of hear about in cert certain movies. But as a fan of Pink Floyd and as a, a, a fan of all the people in Pink Floyd uh, and, and just, it just, and knowing, knowing sort of the hiring process uh, of, of a movie, you know, you, you want people who believe in what you're doing. Um, it's not, Oh, it's not, so much of business it might be for a producer or for an executive producer but you know you, you you really want people who believe in what you're doing and when you find out the things that we find out about bob geldoff it just it just makes me mad <laughs> it shouldn't it shouldn't at all because like i said i think the movie was is great and um you know even like i said he was Apparently he was fine to work with, but it just sort of struck me off um, that it was sort of sticking his nose up at someone like Pink Floyd, who 
the has has music well beyond Boomtown Rats to say the least. I mean, this is subjective, mind you, but um, just for someone like that to sort of be snotty about Pink Floyd music sort of bothered me. But we'll that, keep that, that in mind as we have to recruit bare-chested narcissists for the palaver. <laughs> there you go. I'll you know I'll share my when we when we started down the uh, the endeavor of the wall. You know, somewhere between the the couple of weeks that I started listening to it, you know, and and digging into the vinyl experience of it, I dug out my old DVD that I got of of the wall way way back when when I first you know got a DVD player, and um, you know I popped it in and I watched the movie and I I was kind of like. I, I was really surprised at how disappointed I was in how short it felt uh, for, or sh- how short it fell from what I had remembered as a, as a youngster. And, um, you know, it, you know, on one hand I was watching it thinking like, God, this is just so for the time it was so incredibly innovative and artistic. And like, this was the pre, I mean, this was like, when MTV was really just finding its way. And, and this was like a, a 90 minute music video to an entire album with all this great imagery and all this great stuff. And it was just, it's so visually engaging. Um, and it really, if you think about it, it's probably like the precursor to like, you know, David Bowie's blue jean and Michael Jackson's thriller and who knows how many of the other long form videos that, 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 that came out. And, um, you know, to, you know, Ken was saying operation mind crime, you know, they, they put a little movie together and a whole video thing, you know? So on one hand I'm thinking, God, it's so innovative and so, and so pioneering. And on the other hand, I, I it just fell so flat to me. Like when I, you know, when it was over, I was like, thank God it's over. Like, you know, um, it just dragged on and on and just, and, uh, it was, it was, it was tough. It was tough for me. I don't, I don't, I don't know how to say it. And then I, and then I watched the, the, uh, the documentaries that were, were on the DVD and, and I was actually comforted to, to kind of feel that Roger Waters kind of felt the same, you know, 20 years later, however long, how many years later that they did the DVD, he was like, "Yeah, you know, it's it's too it's too bleak. There's there's no humor in it. There's no laughs." So that is true. It was it was yeah. It was kind of a it was just kind of a mixed bag for me with with overall, and I really had no desire to even go back and watch it again. You know, because I mean, how long ago did we talk about? Did we start talking about the wall? It seems like it was a month and a half ago that we actually were talking about the the music. <laughs> I, I didn't even really want to go back and watch it because um, I. Now that all being said, you know, 1982 or 2020, the animation is fucking amazing and mind blowing. That has held up for sure. Well, I guess now we understand why you've been rather quiet so far in this episode, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like I should thank you for even dialing in at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, here I am gushing about what a wonderful experience it is, and you're sitting there going, "That's yeah, a big pile of crap." <laughs> I love it. I, that's what that's what makes it so great. Love to hear, like you know. So you you mentioned the animation. I'd like to to point out two instances of of the animation that really really get me. Don't leave me now. 
Yeah, yeah. don't leave me now. Okay, yeah. so so that's one that you know just the way that's put together, I think is extraordinarily powerful to me. I I, I just kind of respond to that, and hands down, as far as I'm concerned, the pinnacle of Jerry Scarf animation has mm. got to be for me. Goodbye, Blue Sky. I, yeah. I, I think that whole sequence with the the eagle and and everything else is just I think it's it's very powerful. I think it matches with the music extraordinarily well. There are there are times when some of his animation is kind of like yeah, I mean it's good animation, but I don't know that it syncs up for me personally. But I think Goodbye Blue Sky is just ooh, phenomenal. I think that's an example of if this came out now, you can just see that there'd be all this 3D animation, and you can just see the way it would go. I yeah. mean, I, I can, I'm just, again, I'm really happy it came out when it did, because the 2D animation works really well. And the scene you're talking about, Joe, we start out with the black and white um, silhouette of his wife, and the silhouette morphs into, into different things. And then it sort of turns to color, uh, and you know, there, there's like bigger and bigger monsters um, from from black and white to color. I think that is what we need. I think that's the way it was meant to be. And uh, you know, who knows what it would be if we had all this like modern technology and we had like you know Pixar doing you know 3D animation or whatever. I I, I don't think it would work. Okay. Um, I don't think it would work as well. It might be interesting. Uh, it might be an interesting alternative, but I, I agree with you. Uh, the animation is great. It's dated, okay? I mean, obviously, it's a dated film, but it still works with the given the time it was in, and I think it it, it, it works perfect. It's funny you say it's dated, because I was just about to say it's amazing how undated it looks and you and i have done this before um you know or 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 how maybe maybe dated isn't the word i was looking for maybe more of what i was thinking of is even though you have live action and animation married there i think it comes across as very believable the the way they sort of put those two things together because you know sometimes when you have animation and and live action, it can be jarring, especially in the early '80s, I would imagine. But but this was done, I think, extraordinarily well, at least in that regard. So maybe it is dated, but it's still done extraordinarily well. Did jarring any of the like three of Hans on on the ice planet of Hoth in the Empire Strikes Back? <laughs> uh, that, that kind of jarring. That kind of jarring. Wow. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> While we're talking about what's dated and what's not, did any of the three of you who have procreated on the, this earth bothered to share any of this with your offspring i did not share it with my offspring no ken that's okay. a great question i was actually thinking about that today as a matter of fact ah. I, I swear to god um because i was my your offspring my daughter, aren't old enough tom <laughs> no, my, my oldest daughter's 15 um oh, okay and that's how old we were when we were watching yeah that. i mean but the reason why I was thinking about it, Ken, is because you know my oldest daughter has uh, become interested in a lot of the, um, at least the '80s bands, and you know, and 
which is at least a step up from everyone what 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 kids are listening to. Uh, and although she hasn't had an interest in Pink Floyd, um, she she does sort of go for for darker films, and and she does watch some things that sort of shock me at times. They're you know darker psychological thrillers and sort of darker artsy movies. Um, so mixed with her love of the '80s to her uh, love of, of, of darker films, I was thinking about, wow, I wonder if she would like this movie. And as I was watching it today, that's what was on my mind almost the entire time. I was wondering, you know, would my daughter like this movie? <laughs> uh, and I was almost, I'm almost nervous to bring it up to her because I love Pink Floyd so much. If you give someone the wrong thing to watch or listen to, um, it can make an indelible, you know, bad choice in, in in their in their creative lives. So you're so, saying you, you don't want your daughter to see Bob Geldof? <laughs> I don't know. I, I think I still at this time, even though she likes sort of weird stuff, she might still think this is a little too weird and she might it just it might not work. So I might give it another year or two. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because I've I haven't even thought about the movie because I just, I mean, I mean, I guess maybe because I was like, well, this kind of sucks. I didn't think that that would be the right place to start with, with, uh, with my kids. But, um, you know, Nolan has, I've been like beating Pink Floyd into Nolan's head since we started this between, between uh, dark side of the moon, wish you were here in the wall. I mean, he, he literally ordered me a wall banner on you know for, for my birthday because i was talking to him about it so much but but it's funny because to your point tom like what ha what if the film the wall had come out prior to the to the album release right like it came out what four years um after the the three years after the album was was released mm -hmm. what if what if the movie came out before the record i don't think if you didn't have a knowledge of the record, I don't think the movie is as popular or as successful as it is was um, if it comes out first. And and that would be my fear of of saying, hey, Nolan, check this out, because the movie's already so dated with just the, the war imagery and the, you know, the the 80s stuff that and the telephones and the cars that they have in there that. I don't. I don't know that he could handle it in its production, and then not having enough foundation of the music. I don't. I wonder if if the if the the next generation could handle it. Yeah, I I agree. You really need to have the music as the foundation for sure, and I think that's another reason why I would pause before I would have my oldest daughter watch the movie because she still hasn't discovered Pink Floyd yet, and you know the stuff I play for. Her, I don't know if she's like totally into yet. So um, I would, I would, I'd want to wait for her to, at least to give it another shot for her to like the music before I uh, brought the wall into the mix. Paul, most of it didn't work for you, but maybe there's something specific. Ken and Tom, was, was there any section of the movie that, that didn't land with you? I, I don't know if there is a section that didn't land with me. I think, again, going back to the point um, at the beginning of this, it's so dark, and I love dark movies, but it, it was hard for me. It's hard for me to watch 
some movies. Maybe because as a teenager, I was just sort of so depressed. And, you know, I'm in sort of that dark teenage world. Mm -hmm. And maybe it sort of brought that back in a way. Um, not that I had a bad growing up or, or you know, whatnot. But uh, it, some of the stuff um, is very dark and it doesn't let you breathe. I mean, that being said, you know, I do appreciate the film and I, and I, I do love the film, but I do find it hard to watch straight through. Hmm. And I, I do. Um, and I, I, I don't. But to answer your question, Joe, no, there was not any. There were there were no scenes that sort of cut me off from this. It's consistent with listening to the music. Uh, when I watch the movie. I've had enough after Run Like Hell and Waiting for the Worms Stop and the Trial are very intense for me. And that is no short stretch. It's a full 10 minutes, I believe, when you add all that in. Waiting for the Worms, four minutes, stop 30 seconds and 513 for the trial. And it's, it's always 10 minutes too long. And visually, I mean, of course, Richard Scarf is amazing in that period, right? But I don't know that I needed, you know, the Nazi brown shirts plus, plus the Richard Scarf animation. It's, it's a lot to process. It's like, dude, I got the point of the whole movie. I get it. I get it. Let up. Let me go. I'm I'm glad the brown shirts have come into this because one of the things that popped up during the the documentary that really doesn't sit well with me and and Paul I don't know if you recall this um, but Alan Parker and, and maybe one of the other guys makes mention of the fact that they used some real skinheads and that said skinheads had a tendency to get sort of caught up in some of the more violent um, yeah. scenes that were going on. If Roger Waters has such strong feelings against fascism, why in God's green earth is he employing actual fucking skinheads? Well, did he have a part in employing them, or was that Alan Parker? And, then, I, and typically, I, You I tell mean, me if, if Roger Waters says... You can't fucking do this. That Alan Parker is going to be able to do it. I, I well, no. My point is that you, I think that there are so many people involved in in bringing people on, um, in 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 hiring, in auditioning um, for for roles, um, and I it, it may have been. There, there could be a scenario, Joe, where Roger Waters didn't know this. And, and, and if that's the case, then, then Alan Parker has to carry all of this. But I find... Alan Marshall. I mean, maybe, oh. Tom, you can school us on the role of the actual producer. Because, I mean, because unless... Um, it, it, it sounds like Roger Waters didn't have as much, you know, money in this as... Maybe the producer. He probably didn't have a say after some point, right? Whatever the case may I mean, isn't it fundamentally abhorrent to employ these people? Agreed. Agreed. Point taken. It, it is. It, I mean, it is. But I'm just saying that there may be a scenario 
where Roger Waters had no idea. And and, about. and 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 that may be the case, but whoever is responsible, it just it it makes me very very hostile. Paul, wow. Well, I was just you know I in no way shape or form I, I'm I'm trying to make excuses or you know saying that it it's not offensive. I, I just want to point out that, that it is 1982 and um, I, you know, sh I mean, strangely, I, I feel like, I'm, I mean, am I wrong? It's, I felt like skinheads were almost commonplace in, um, in the yeah, 80s. Like they, they were they marching were, in New they Hope. Were they were just off brand punkers, right? Right. It was, it was a very tight, it was a very close thing. And, if Roger Waters or Alan Parker had any, you know, misgivings about having them there, you know, it's possible they flipped on the TV and they were like, oh, well, there's Genesis, the cultural, culturally misappropriating Mexicans. <sighs> so fuck it. That's fine. Let's move on. I, and and I, I don't know. I just certainly in the lens of 2020, it 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 does not sit well with me at all. And it seems you know, at the very least, extraordinarily, um, shoot, I lost the word already, um, irresponsible. I, I, to the, to the point of them hiring them, I mean, like if, I mean, clearly they, they were going for a specific look. They were going for the fascist rally look. It required people with shaved heads and, so they, you know, they put out an extra cast call, you know, they're probably bound to, Hey, you look the part you're in, you know, but what I found probably, um, not really offensive, but somewhat fascinatingly humorous was that they got a room full of these of some, and some, you know, legitimate fascists. And then they brought a choreographer out and, and told them to all like do this, you know, to the beat of run like hell while they're in the big, <laughs> you know? And I just thought, wow, that's pretty funny that they're getting them to do all that. That's. I mean, uh, according to IMDb, according to IMDb, the casting director is um, um, Celestia Fox. Okay. I've never heard of this person. How do you spell the last but, name? Uh, how do I spell the last name? F O X Fox. Oh, okay. okay. Um, I thought and, maybe it may have been a German spelling or something like that. No, um, <laughs> so uh, the casting director, you know, is, can often do sort of like underhanded things to get the job done. Um, cheaply on a, on a cheaper level, because if they do it, if they're given a certain budget and they can bring people in cheaper, they can keep that extra money. Um, so, you know, they, my point is that there's a situation where you're not always telling the people above you or the creative force behind something exactly what's going on. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't want to throw Roger Waters to the wolves on this because well, there's a, you know, th this casting director, you know, may have been like, Hey, why go through professional actors? We can get a bunch of skinheads who, you know, need a couple bucks for, you know, you know, some some drugs or they'll they're, do it for whatever. Fascist, they're fascist rallies of their own. Right, I, right, right, right. 
I, it's, you know, to Joe's point, like there was clear awareness because, you know, I, I remember this part of the documentary where Alan Parker was like, yes, like there were some scenes with the skinheads where they got a little too carried. They got a little too into it. Like, you know, we're putting on a show and it was like it was real life for them. Um, so there was there was definitely some kind of awareness and and um, maybe I'm maybe I'm I should be more more. uh uh, disturbed by that than I am. Well, I'm disturbed enough for the both of us. So, excellent. <laughs> hey, let's uh, bad segue, but let's start. Let's balance this out. I just happened to look over at my notes, and I saw something that was was much more in the in the light vein. We're a bunch of guys who grew up in the the Philadelphia area. Did we catch Mike Schmidt on the uh, billboard? No. Oh, I must have missed Mike Schmidt. <laughs> Dur wow. During the, the nighttime sort of riot scenes when the police are arresting everyone, there's Mike Schmidt on a 7-Up billboard in the background. Oh. <laughs> wow. That may be the only reason I go back and ever watch this movie again. <laughs> oh, that's funny. And I think it's in, you see it in the very beginning, Paul, so you won't have to watch for very long. Oh, okay. Just kind of running through my notes, if if that's okay at this point. A couple things that sort of leapt out at me. Um, the, the playground scene with young Pink, mm. absolutely painful. I mean, it's really well done at that point. Yeah. It was so far out. Th that was very cinematic. It was shot very well. It, it was blocked very well. You had exactly the amount of information that you needed to feel for the kid with almost no dialogue. I thought, Tom, did you pick up on, did you like that scene? It's a, it's a great scene. And I think, well, I think in general, the, the child pink did a very good job. Um, and he was able to really, I thought, the, the, I mean, talk about character arc. You guys brought up a character arc earlier. Um, I think more character arc is, is brought up um, through Child Pink. Um, when we get to Bob Geldof Pink, he's already in that space. Yeah. Um, and I think um, going through what the child went through and, and seeing that really through his eyes, and um, going through that horror through his eyes, I think was very um, important for, for the film. And I thought it was um, very, very well done. Another scene that really, really struck me sort of from a visual perspective, and the director of photography himself went on about this, the, the transitional scene in the train tunnel. Oh yeah! In, into another brick in the wall, part two, where the, the the little young pink is putting the bullet on the um, on the rails, right? And his friends are outside freaking out. The the director of photography was talking about the way they they just use the natural light outside coming in and sort of silhouetted pink as as being sort of visually stunning. But even when the train gets there, and, and Tom, you were talking about this as well, you know. The, the train comes in and it's got these cattle cars and at first Pink sees children in the cattle cars and then they're the, the children wearing the anamorphic masks, which is 
you know, it, it just sort of ramps up the, the spookiness and then it feeds right in seamlessly into the, the another brick in the wall part two, which is just I, I the the way they constructed that sequence um just you know really, really worked for me. I thought that was great. Joe, Joe you're you're right on. That is the scene, not the one in another brick in the wall part two where they're uh, going through the assembly line, but that's the one that really freaks me out. Yeah. And that is so well done um, in the train. And I mean, that is one of those things that stick with you throughout the years. And I mean, in general, I mean, talking about that, I mean, that sort of sits on your shoulder for years. I mean, I didn't realize it um, until we started talking about Pink Floyd, but Pink Floyd is one of the reasons I think many filmmakers have gotten into the film industry. When you talk to like filmmakers my age, like there, a lot of them are musicians, and a lot of them are are into Pink Floyd, and um, they watch The Wall, and The Wall movie is sort of like a like a a silent T Rex. <laughs> so it's like when you don't think about it. Um, it's it's fine, but then um, then you realize it, and it's it's behind you, and it's breathing down your neck, like when you think about it. And I think it's so like some of those scenes are really strong, and they they just stay with you, and you forget about them. But when they come when they come back, they're they're right in your face, and it's it scares the hell out of you. But you know, I I, I think this film should be credited um, for a lot of the things that we see now, even in maybe not straight up horror films, but maybe in like darker um, psychological thrillers or, or, or darker thrillers. I mean, people who were watching this movie at that, the time it was out. A lot of these people are filmmakers now. Yeah. And um, so scenes like that, I think really stick with you. It, it's interesting since we're sort of on another brick in the wall part two. There's there is a part in the documentary where Alan Parker talks about one of the original plans was to use the inflatable Alan scarf creations in sort of the the movie, and and Alan mentions that that just didn't really work out very well. And I, I don't know if it was in if it was in that or maybe it was one of the extras on the Blu-ray that I've got. But there's a there's the the quote unquote music video for another brick in the wall part two where you actually see the inflatable schoolmaster like out in the street in daylight and it is the weirdest freaking thing you've ever seen in your life it is absolutely jarring it's very cool but it's very jarring so I I, I understand sort of in, re in retrospect why they didn't keep that aspect in. But that, that really is, you know, sort of an aside into a segue, because one of the next notes I have here has to do with the animation sequence through the extended part of Empty Spaces here. And so, Tom, you talk about, you know, things that get on your shoulder and stay with you forever. There's that one, it's a very short segment as the wall is rushing through, and there are two characters who get sort of stuck outside the wall, and the one sort of comes over and just clubs the other one in the head. And <laughs> and that just freaks me yeah. out. Joe, before you advance too far past the idea of the mask, it's just fascinating. I see 
that they are collector's items at various times one or another has been sold with a certificate of authenticity. The, really? This, the description is such. Made of plastic, the pink mask has a mouth and eye holes which have been created by burning the plastic, hmm. which would account for the irregular organic shape of the holes with the mask finished in pink paint. A length of elastic is attached to the rear to allow the mask to be worn by the school children in the sequence and the significance thereof the mask they're they're essentially faceless. It's taking away the emotion, the expression and the uniqueness of the student. What's the street value on one of these masks? Ken, do we know? Had uh, I think I think I have to create an account on one of these sites to oh, okay. see something like that. I'm, and but but don't get any ideas. Your you, your wall is full, Joe. No, I I have no intention of, of <laughs> purchasing one. Quite frankly, I don't know if I would sleep with it in the house. But I'm just curious, yeah. you know, what because there can't be that many of these things lying flying around. Um, and actually, looking over your shoulder, the anamorphic masks from the the uh, 1980 live show are showing on the. Uh, on the CD that's behind you, Ken. Oh, that's wonderful. I, 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 I perhaps could have mentioned that when, when we covered the live shows, but uh, I, 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 ju I, just, I just love knowing that it's not simply an album cover, that it's actually a photograph of the masks worn by the surrogate band. Right, yeah, that, that's very, very cool. Joe, Joe, I would just stick with getting the Adam Hart mother cow that you wanted. Oh, trust me, I'm going to get the cow. Have no fear. Now, in terms of a, of a maybe a larger sequence, the the Don't Leave Me Now sequence, which we already talked about a little bit um, before, is I think it when you think of it as a physical manifestation of madness, it, it's. I find it to be very, very powerful. Like, how do you, how do you visually convey someone going mad? Well, this is a really good way to do that. I think that's that's really powerful. And and the other thing that sort of strikes me about this is, this is one of the the cases where, as this moves into brick three, that the music changes dramatically from what we've heard before. Another brick in the wall, part three in the movie is absolutely blistering um which is it's so you know, like you you have this cadence in your mind because you've heard the music so often and then when it when three kicks in with that super tempo and you're just like whoa what the hell's going on now it's like things are just totally out of control i think that's very cool and then ultimately that resolves itself at the end of another brick in the wall part three we see that that visual of the completed wall. And we're talking about the actual physical wall that they constructed in, in sort of that black and white with the, with the eerie lighting. What struck me about this wall specifically in this shot, and I would have never, I would have never thought of this a couple of years ago, but that shot of that wall and the way it's lit and the black and white and sort of the, the void around it with there's no sound or anything else that is very very david lynch to me 
Um, and I don't know if if David Lynch, you know, if that was one of the things that influenced him, or if David Lynch was already making films back then. I don't know when Eraserhead came out. I don't know if if they were influenced by him. But they're they're that type of image is the sort of thing that David Lynch loves to use to great effect. 1977 for Eraserhead. Okay, so there you go. Well, yeah, apparently they were ripping off David Lynch. Well, I'm not saying that they are. Maybe they were influenced. I don't know. Um, I already talked about In the Flesh being so powerful. We talked about Run Like Hell. Waiting for the Worms is, is funny. Ken, you talked about this is where you start to, you know, sort of have some fatigue with, with the visuals. I think the... I think the the sort of platform in the street, Pink using the megaphone for that sort of you know garbled vocal thing, very very you know I, I think it's a it's a very strong image that sort of matches that. And then as it's building at the end, you have those marching hammers, and it it does you know that that image goes on long enough that it it it, it literally starts to beat you down, and then. Couple that with the 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 one hammer that becomes the megaphone, right? It, it's just it's fascinating to me the way Jerry is able to sort of blend all these images in, and again, it translates pretty seamlessly from the live action into the animation. Not that it's it's in the same thing like we talked about earlier, but it just you know it that flow of images seems to make perfect sense to me, and then. The fact that all this is going on and you have these grandiose schemes, and we've, we've talked about it before, how, you know, that segment of the story is going on in Pink's mind. But the fact that they explicitly show the trial occurs while Pink is sitting in a stall next to a toilet was, <laughs> it's just, it, it, it's the, the ultimate juxtaposition of he has these grand ideas in his head but he's sitting on the floor next to a toilet because that's what happens, you know, or at least that's what happens to this character. And, and it's, I, I thought that was a, an extraordinarily sort of powerful image to project that even though in your brain, all these great things are going on, your reality may be vastly different. Well, hats off to the location scout because that bathroom is just phenomenal. It's perfect, right? Well, it could be a set. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, hats off to the production designer. We have to look into <laughs> see if it was a set or not. <laughs> yeah, who, who, however it is, I just I and we talked about it. These these images in that fascist section, they're very strong, they're very disturbing. They were probably disturbing in 1982. I find them much more disturbing in 2020, and it's sort of Showing Pink on the floor next to the toilet exposes the, what's the word I'm looking for here? The, the fallacy of that disturbing part. It, it shows that everything that you saw that disturbed you isn't real. It doesn't have any of the power that you think it has. It, it grounds everything and, and, you know, shows that it, it doesn't have that influence, I think. 
Yeah, I I find this part of the film this is this is probably my favorite part really. Um, as we've talked through this so many times, and you know, I've come to I've come to to believe that you know all of this is really about for for all of the years that I've spent trying to think about what all the meaning behind all of this could really be. I've I've really just come to the point where I I, I think it is just literally the idea that that you know in its most basic sense you know the artist is a part of this huge machine of of commercialism of albums being put out and touring to the point where you know he has to do everything like his entire life is is put put aside so he can go to the show and no matter how ridiculous and how how off the rails he decides to act, everyone in the crowd goes along with him. And in fact, to the point where he completely loses control. He has no control over his artistic life. He has no control over what the crowd is doing. And they take him so serious to the point like it goes even beyond what he can, can comprehend. And all he really wants to do is just be isolated from everyone because that that's who he is. And to me, that's the, the, to your point, Joe, it's the perfect scene where all of this is going around him spinning out of control and he is the central figure. And yet somehow he's just sitting in the, in the bathroom stall curled up against the toilet, wishing that it would all just go away and, and stop. And I think, you know, it's it's such sort of an awkward moment where the where the security guard just kind of walks over to the stall and is just not really sure whether he should like peer inside and then he just cracks open the door and the animation you know it it's i it's it's to me it's the probably the my favorite part of the whole shebang my goodness there are so many things in 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 in, in the wiki they're brief uh, Repetition here, but um, Waters began work on the film screenplay after studying script writing books. He and Scarf produced blah, blah, blah. But after screen tests, Waters was ruled out. And once he was ruled out as the protagonist, that ruled out all of the live concert footage that they had shot. So they were left with Richard Scarf and this whole new concept to shoot it. Mm. And and what I gather um, is that Waters said filming was a very unnerving and unpleasant experience. Scarf himself would arrive at the studio carrying a bottle of Jack Daniels. I had to have a slug before I went in the morning because I knew what was coming up and I knew I had to fortify myself in some way. It's amazing. It's as good as it is if you, if you, <laughs> if you thoroughly digest the negative energy that was behind this whole thing. Right, right. They say it's darkest before the dawn, or they say, you know, each uh, failure is a new opportunity. Um, that's clearly the case here. Yeah, I, I was interested, I don't know why I was surprised at this, but I was interested to hear that they, they remixed the music for the movie. I mean, I know they obviously have to mix in all the sound effects and the dialogue and the all the extra stuff, but um, uh, actually, um, 
I, I was somewhat surprised about how much remixing they did with the music itself and um, how much of that was Gilmore. Uh, you know, Gilmore actually apparently had a lot to do with the remixing of uh, the, the music to the film. And, you know, when you have all these elements together, um, you really appreciate what it takes to mix a film because there's a zillion tracks. I mean, I mean, just an endless amount of tracks and to really make certain things pop. Uh, you, you really have to start from the ground floor. That is just an element of this whole thing that sort of, I had, it was like a VA moment. Uh, you know, it was just like a, uh, it, it was like, it, it just hit me. I was like, oh, that's right. They had to remix all the music. So everything can be heard in a, in a, in, in, in the right manner. And so I was, um, that, that was just another aspect of things that uh, impressed me. So at this point, really the only other notes I have really revolve around the trial, which in some regards doesn't work for me nearly as much as I think it probably should. The only part of it that really, really, you know, gets me excited is I am just fixated on the schoolmaster. I, <laughs> I love the schoolmaster. I love him sort of being dropped over the wall. I love the way he morphs into the hammer. I, I you know, the, the schoolmaster's line in the trial has always been one of my favorites. Um, it's one that I'm most prone to sing as I, you know, walk around the house doing whatever it is that I do. So, um I do think it's funny the mother coming in as the airplane. That just kind of cracks me up as well. Yeah. Now, here's a question that I have with regards to the, the the trial. In the documentary, Jerry Scarf talks about the judge was originally supposed to be a worm, and in fact, he starts out as a worm. And we all know what he winds up as because you have this butt with teeth screaming at you for a couple of minutes. But but again, I ask the question, the line fills me with the urge to defecate was in there from the beginning, in 1979, before this movie was made. Um, so at what point did Jerry Scarf, like, did Jerry Scarf come up with the idea of worm as a butt, or was it was it did did Roger write the lyric because of that because he knew where Jerry Scarf was eventually going to go or did Jerry Scarf was he actually inspired by what Roger had written even though it doesn't come across in the documentary it's it's a completely nonsensical thing to worry about but i just can't stop wondering which came first the the butt or the defecate because <laughs> you can't have those two things go too well together. One of them had to drive the other. But given the timing of when the butt appeared, I don't. It doesn't make sense to me. Well, the butt is on the gatefold of the LP, is it not? Oh, isn't warm? It is. Yeah, you're right. So we must have always known that worm was going to be a butt. So did that? 
did that drive Roger to change the lyric? I don't know. But thanks for re reminding me, Paul. Actually, I don't. I don't have the vinyl, so I don't necessarily. Well, we stared at it. We stared at it for three weeks. That's right. It was it was over Tom's shoulders. I recall <laughs> the 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 butt staring at me. Thank you for see. I can't remember anything. This is an example of someone having a creative vision that I think. And Ken, you had mentioned this. I I, I agree with you. I think the the this motion picture is is the the most complete and comprehensive. Um, realization of this vision. Now, does that come about because you have these other creative forces, you know, taking such large parts in it? I think maybe that's probably part of it. But whatever the case may be, I think the wall, the motion picture is is really a a remarkable achievement. Is is where I'm going to land on all of this. I I will agree with you on that. I, I'll just say, thirty years later. It leaves me flat, but I can't. I don't think I could take away from the epicness of of its achievement in its original form and the influence. I mean, yeah. I thought of uh, Fly from Here. Yes, I mean, when, once you start with the images of the World War II planes, it's inevitable. I don't think I saw the, the same documentary as you guys, but I did um, watch a the smaller one, a story that I I really loved was when they screened this, when they premiered this at, at, at Cannes, I think, um, they brought their own sound system. Yeah, and I heard sound that. sound system was so powerful that it created dust from the plaster because it was coming off the walls. <laughs> and people who were watching this thought it was part of the movie. They thought, oh, my gosh, this is a really interactive thing. Um, but... Um, uh, you know, of course, that they, they didn't mean for that to happen, but uh, it was so Pink Floyd for them to bring their own sound system. I thought that was yeah. awesome. That's cool. Well, it's because no one was using the Britannia Rose sound system at the time because they huh. wouldn't they wouldn't change it for anyone. <laughs> Pink Floyd is not exclusive in the realm of introspection. They don't have a patent on this. Things like this were being done years before you could say david bowie's fame and all sorts of you know artists had mocked the industry oh yeah mo mocked themselves in the in the process um i just want to throw in this trivial fact uh as far as 1982 goes if this is a bit too dark for you looking at the music biz and you need an antidote i would say the antidote would be rush's limelight have a listen there. Mm. And you get a much rosier picture of the possibilities. Mm. You, 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 you can deny stardom and you can mock the industry and use major chords. <laughs> <laughs> what, when, when we talk about the mocking of the industry, I love the layer upon layer industry mocking when the teacher grabs Pink's book in another brick in the wall and yeah. reads the lyrics to money, which yeah. was the album that made them all this money while mocking the industry that is making them all this money. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's just, and, and, and the way that he reads those lyrics is so condescending and they sound utterly ridiculous in that context. Right. It, it's amazing. So I'm glad we, we finally landed on that, Ken. So in the interest of time, I would like to sort of um, 
to to bring this to a close and you know so again with the exception of of maybe some lessons learned with friends of the palaver this is going to close out our pink floyd segment at this point there is nothing else for us to talk about so i will give you know around the horn any last thoughts on on the wall the movie pink floyd as a whole how do we how do we land this one gentlemen I'll I'll just say this. I don't know how long we've been talking about Pink Floyd. Months. I feel like we've been talking. It's, I feel like it's been like a year. I mean, I I it it's it went by probably faster than any other band, and I have just as I have with all of the other groups that we've gone through. I've I've found going through their catalog to be inspiring, but I have to say that. I would I have to say more so than any other band that we've gone through the palaver I have found this to be just absolutely invigorating and inspiring and I thought I was over and sort of finished with the with Pink Floyd and the Pink Floyd catalog I can't believe how how invigorated I am to listen to Pink Floyd and and, and I still have continued to do even though we're long gone after the after the stuff it's been fantastic you are the Pink Floyd guy. <laughs> <laughs> it was inevitable. I mean, they called you that long enough and you had to grow into it. You just needed a few years. <laughs> oh, my. I think that's, uh, that's a pretty good synopsis. Ken or Tom, anything else? Sort of quick thoughts? I'm, I'm going to go with the where we started started way back where we had two architecture students and two musicians that came together. And I'm still impressed with the architecture of it all. It, it, so many bands need to listen to more Pink Floyd because you wouldn't have wanking. You wouldn't have excess. You would have music for music's sake. That's what I learned from this module in, in your course of palavering, Joe. Nice. Excellent. You guys said it. I mean, this has been incredible. I mean, I there are albums that I had never listened to or only listened to a little bit that I have in steady rotation. I mean, I listen to metal all the time. And, um, of course, Adam Hart Mother was just like a find to, to no other. Um, something like that was... I felt like I struck gold when I first heard that. Um, and I just heard that, you know, a couple months ago. Um, and so finding these little nooks and these, these, these sort of hidden um, lesser known albums have been wonderful. And then discovering and then sort of rediscovering the ones that we grew up listening to has also been wonderful, you know, being older, and listening to them with perspective really made me appreciate the albums that we grew up with even more. Uh, you know, a lot of times it's the opposite, right? You know, when we you listen to something now that you listen to when we were younger, it, it doesn't hold. Yeah. And but this it was even more so. I mean, it really, I found more of an appreciation for Pink Floyd uh, now than I did back in the day. So it's it, it's it's been great. Yeah, and and I'll echo those sentiments, you know. And and Paul, I think I think we've been doing Pink Floyd literally most of 2020. 
at this mm. point. And, you know, when I think back to the, the rush fatigue we had at the end of, of that segment, which was about the same number of albums, and we've done multiple episodes on some of these albums, it, it's amazing to me how, you know, not fatigued I feel right now. And, and it has been very illuminating for me. There was a lot of the Pink Floyd catalog I did not even know about. And, mm. you know, it's been, it's been a joy to discover that. Um, and, and, you know, to, to, to look at, you know, what makes Pink Floyd different from other progressive, uh, rock acts. And, you know, can I think maybe you hit this on the head? It's that, it's that architecture. It's that, um, that, that sort of focus on what the music is as opposed to whatever else, you know, other bands may bring in, which can be brilliant, but it, it, you know, it, Sometimes it's not too. So I, I have, I have very much enjoyed this. Um, you know, the things that I loved, I still love the things I didn't know about. I, I love now. And even some things that I thought I didn't like, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm on board. So, and, and as always, I want to thank you guys for, for spending all of this time listening to these albums and all the time that we spent talking about them. I think this has been, a you know we're getting better at this and i think this has been a really good segment for us um just in terms of of execution and subject matter and so i i appreciate that and again this is this will come out as episode 99 and hopefully the next time people hear us on the podcast now i know we'll have hopefully a live event sort of leading up to episode 100 but you know we'll be celebrating our our 100th episode sort of as as a as a complete group so we very much look forward to that and uh yeah so thank you guys for you know the last you know what two and a half years that we've been doing this it's been absolutely spectacular amen here here you've enjoyed this episode of Progressive Palaver. As always, we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you. If you have any thoughts, comments, feedback, or questions on either the motion picture of the wall or anything on the Pink Floyd catalog, we encourage you to reach out to us. You can reach us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at progpala or search for Progressive Palaver. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. Still not on Pandora yet as of the recording, but at some <laughs> point, I know we're going to get there. Or presumably wherever you uh, you find your podcast. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, the big 100. Thanks for listening.
David Bowie is overrated. Oh, come on. Can I change really? can I change my episode one hundred album? <laughs> <laughs>